Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science and Man About Town, uh, Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Man About Town, huh? I had no idea, but thank you, I think. <laughs> We've been doing a series of podcasts uh, about publication, of sources of authority, and so forth. And we've been kind of gotten up to the meat of it, which is the books themselves. Um, and we talked about some of your early books. And now we're up to really the latest book, the book process, uh, and so forth. Um, so, for example, we talked about how uh, the process began for you as a child with your reading as a child and then more serious reading as a student and then your first teaching jobs and how you began as a law professor writing uh, ser uh, serious articles and a large number of articles, maybe a hundred serious articles. And then you moved into academic books um, and how the articles morphed into these academic books. And, and now at this point in your career, you move from the academic press to the trade press. And that's an entirely new infrastructure or ecosystem. And we discussed how that includes uh, acquiring a literary agent, what makes a good literary agent for you, you know, a good literary agent in, in general, but one that's good specific to you. And then what's involved with pitching to publishers, uh, writing a treatment, revising a treatment, and so forth. The role of the agent is prominent. And then you start to work with editors at the publisher, uh, and how you pick, in some ways, an editor that's a good match for you. And that can go into how you pick the publisher. We talked about that. Um, and uh, I think that brings us uh, uh, up through our prior podcasts. Anything you want to add to that, uh, Akil? Um, we've talked a lot about your son, Matthew. You inadvertently um, actually outed your daughter, Carol, uh, Carolyn, uh, because um, she's a Hollywood person. And they call, actually, plot summaries in Hollywood treatments. Um, um, uh, in the book world, um, uh, the, the little uh, book summary, I think they, they typically tend to call them um, uh, 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 prospectuses. Ah, okay. I'm not sure that's a term we used earlier. So perhaps, and now of course, you know, as we, as I think we've mentioned, you yourself wrote a, a treatment. I at did. And point. at some point, I think I should put it in fact up on um, uh, our website because I don't think it, it was so edgy when I did it. Um, but now it, because it was so prophetic, actually, um, uh, it was, it's called Electoral College. It's a, it's a constitutional thriller. And I actually blow up a president on screen um, early on. And then it's a, a tussle about who's going to actually uh, control, um, uh, be become basically uh, the president's successor. Um, and, and it was really interesting and edgy. But now it's going to seem so tame after January 6th and all the rest. Like, you know, you know uh, but, but, but at, uh, so I don't think actually Hollywood's ever going to make it into a movie. But if they had done it, 10 years ago, it would have actually been a blockbuster, I think. But now, you know, it's never going to be a movie. So I think at some point I should actually post the, the treatment, which is a 25-page plot um, summary. You know, I think that you, uh, you determined, you, you, you posed a question there inadvertently that will determine whether this podcast uh, is a success or not. Because you, the question will be, uh, is the term constitutional thriller an oxymoron or not? <laughs> okay. 
So, all right. So, so now you've, you've uh, written your book and we want to talk about what goes into that. Um, so let me talk a little bit about the writing of um, this book in particular. I, 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 I told you about how some of my earlier books, because we're now up to the latest book, really, the, the words that made us in kind of my, my autobiography. Um, and, and I said, gee, um, you, you, got it just, you got me just right. I start as a reader of books at age five and uh, going to the library in sixth and seventh, uh, fifth and sixth and seventh grades every day in the summer and then showing up at Yale College and being exposed to serious books. Some of the same, the, the most serious um, books that I was exposed to in, in, in my first semester at Yale College are the ones that are really important in ch- chapters two and three, actually, of the new book, books by Bernard Balin and Gordon Wood, who was nice enough to, to be on our podcast a few weeks ago, and, and my teacher, Ed Morgan, and others. Um, so we talked about all of that. You got me just right in, in previous episodes. And um, I talked about how my first um, uh, book, which was for an academic audience, was just a series of law review articles slapped together. It, it, um, and, but then I began uh, becoming um, a, a book author and um, my second book, um, which is called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, took a couple of law review articles and really reworked them very considerably um, into um, 12, uh, a 12-chapter 12 um, uh, uh, book. Um, I took uh, uh, two articles, each of which was about 100 pages or so, and, and kind of turned it into a 350-page um, book, um, redoing it considerably. And, and that's when I was around 40 years old or so. I'm now in my early 60s. The transition then was to actually write books, start to finish, just conceive of a, a, a book project at the very beginning. They're not law review articles um, that are being slapped together or law review articles that are being reworked in some way, you know, uh, sliced and diced and, and reassembled. Um, I'm from the very first keystroke as I sit at at the typewriter um, or at the word processor, I'm going to write a book. And by the way, um, um, this is the very first time at at age 40 is also um, when I actually start word processing until then, actually I didn't know how to type and I wrote everything out longhand. Um, and, uh, so, so I'm making a transition even in how I write, um, I compose now at a keyboard and not, um, with a pen and a legal pad. Um, and this sounds maybe silly to some people in our audience, like who cares how he writes, but if you talk to authors, um, oh, they have their own little rhythms and routines. Some of them have to, you know, they, they put on a special sweater, you know, they go to a particular part of, of, of the house um, or they, um, they do it at a certain time of day, you know, every day. Uh, authors have their little rhythms and, and routines and rituals often. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's, that's a whole other subject, I think, are these, are these rituals of authors. But I think you made a, an interesting point there that you – you changed your ritual that you went yeah. from from longhand to to typing, and um, some authors will never do that. So uh, uh, famously, you know, Robert Caro, that uh, for example, still uses a typewriter. And actually, there was an article the other day uh, because his papers um, are now uh, on exhibit at the New York Historical Society, and I think it was called "Why Robert Caro." no longer has 11 typewriters, you know, because one of them is at the, at the New York Historical Society. But th- this notion of, of being able to change, you know, many authors can't do that. And I think that the next uh, 
way that many authors may find it convenient to change is from typing to dictation. And um, John Hart Ely, for example, a great constitutional scholar, dictated his books. And, so, and some people who are much uh, more fluid um, and, and than um, I actually are able simply to um, uh, uh, move from uh, uh, their oral presentation just directly to just perfectly polished um, prose. Um, you know, I've always so, been impressed by people that that can dictate and have uh, all sorts of, I would, I guess, I would say, interesting details um, in their in their writing. And the the greatest example I can think of that is Montaigne, um, the Michel de Montaigne. He he actually dictated the essays. Um, I know this because I was just actually visited the Chateau de de Montaigne where he wrote them. And this is in the the 16th century. And uh, it's really quite remarkable that such a complex series of documents was able to be dictated. Um, There are many Brits who are uh, uh, spectacular at this. Um, I mentioned in an earlier episode that the greatest lawyer of the 20th century, perhaps, um, surely one of the greatest, undeniably, uh, in my opinion, is uh, the late Telford Taylor, um, and uh, how his ideas about the Fourth Amendment very much influenced me. I, I remember actually the moment when I stumbled on his book. It was actually in a library stacks. I was looking for something else, and this was next to the book I was looking for. And, set, and I pulled it out and, and said, hmm, opened it up and started reading it and was immediately sucked in, so I checked it out. And it's called Two Studies in Constitutional Interpretation, and they're lectures that he gave, I believe, at Ohio State. Um, And they're basically transcriptions of the lectures that he lightly edited. And the lectures are so detailed with lots of case discussions and beautiful elaborations. And and I'm thinking, my God, how was, and apparently he, this was just from his notes. Um, He he lectured from notes, um, but the style is so impeccable. And apparently the, 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 the book is mainly just a, an audio transcript, lightly edited, of these uh, lectures that he gave, these evening lectures, um, called, again, Two Studies in Constitutional Interpretation. So there are people who can do that. Um, um, I'm not one of those. Uh, our, some of our audience members have actually told Andy about all my ums and ahs and ands, and, and, and uh, he, Andy insists that this is not a stutter, but it, it, it's, it's not smooth. Uh, I, I understand. I, I'm not quite a, a Brit that way. Um, uh, but I did have to retrain myself. And for the first few weeks uh, after I um, made the transition to uh, uh, word processing, see, I didn't know how to type before I was 40 years old. And I, I got this, um, and, and this woman named Mavis Beacon changed my life. She has this famous typing tutorial, online typing tutorial. It's like a video game, a series of video games called Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing. And and here's what I realized, you see, um, that I I didn't have to be a great typist in order um, to be a good enough typist. Um, uh, There's this famous joke about um, two hikers and they're in the woods and, and and a bear appears on the scene and one of them starts to lace up the sneakers. And the other guy says, him, you know, what are you doing? You, you can't outrun a bear. And the, the first tiger says, I don't have to outrun a bear. I just the bear, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> okay. So uh, um, it turns out, yes, I didn't have, 
all I need to be as a typist is better, faster than I was um, in handwriting. And it turns out, you know, because you can't, a lot of people, unless they know shorthand, they, they, they're not writing very fast. So within three weeks, I was typing faster than I used to handwrite. So I was actually ahead of the game. Um, but um, uh, um, that's um, if, I, if I knew what I was typing out. Uh, but for the first month or so, I had writer's block as I sat with my fingers on the keyboard that the thoughts weren't flowing the way they had when I sat with a pen uh, in my hand um, and, a, and a legal pad. So in order to get over that hump, I refused to, to touch a pen for any purpose whatsoever. You know, I just typed everything because I thought I got I to gotta break through. And, you know, after another week or two, I was composing on the keyboard, which is, of course, what, what most people do. Um, so anyway, um, at the same time that I'm switching from being um, an article author to being a book author and I'm starting to compose books um, from scratch, from the first keystroke, um, that's when I make the transition to, to Random House. That was the book, America's Constitution, a biography, um, which is 2005. And we can we'll talk about titles also, because that wasn't actually the original title. But yes, we haven't talked quite as much about just the writing of the book. We talked a little bit about the editing of it, and Bob Bloom is giving me all sorts of suggestions. Here's and, and every author has to figure out his or her own um, um, formula and, and, and style. Here's basically mine. Um, it's actually somewhat cookie cutter um, in the same way that actually um, there, there are some authors and, and, and they just have a character, um, um, let's see, even novelists or something, um, uh, fiction writers, they have a characteristic style. Um, and P.G. Woodhouse, for example, has a certain kind of style. Um, and, and, uh, um, uh, um, you know, uh, and, and Jane Austen, you know, has a certain, um, uh, kind of book that she, she, she writes. Okay. And, and they, no, spo- you know, this is not a big spoiler alert, but, but her books are going to end with happy weddings, for example. Okay. Um, so, so she, she writes books, um, in a certain way. So here's my style. I, I realized Okay, I'm writing big, long books. They're, as we've talked about before, I aim to be panoramic. They're books about the whole Constitution and not just one part of it. So a lot for me is now going to depend on how I organize the book. In what way is it panoramic and how do I organize? Because I can't talk about everything all at once. Um, so each book that I've written is panoramic in a different way. America's Constitution and Biography walks you through the text from start to finish. My new book, um, uh, Watch is uh, America, The Words That Made Us, is walking you through history, starting in 1760 and, and moving forward. That's, that's a different way of narrating the project than working from the preamble to Article 1, Article 2, Article 3, textually. Um, uh, um, but, um, okay, so now you have a schema. Um, one book is going to be textual. And another book is going to be chronological. Fine. And by the way, America's Constitution of Biography, the last third was chronological because going through the text at a certain point, you switch to the amendments and the amendments are added as so many um, chronological postscripts and postscripts. You got the Bill of Rights 
um, uh, in 1790s, and then the Civil War amendments in the 1860s, and then the Progressive Amendments, like income tax, women's suffrage, um, direct election of senators in the 19-teens, the 1960s amendments. So the last third of America's Constitution, a biography, is chronological because the text becomes chronological at a certain point. It begins conceptually, um, legislative power, executive power, judicial power, Articles 1, 2, and 3. But then at a certain point, it switches to chronological, the Bill of Rights, the Reconstruction Amendments, the Progressive Amendments, um, the 1960s Amendments. Okay, so I've got my big schema. One's going to be, they're, it's, they're panoramic, but, but one's going to be a textual book. The new one is a, is a um, uh, chronological project. But now how do you move from that to actual um, um, uh, structure and schema, to chapters, to um, subchapters, or subtopics, to, to paragraphs, to, to topic sentences and the like. And here's my uh, secret sauce, my um, uh, little gimmick. I try to take a really big panoramic project and just break it down, subdivide it into smaller parts. So I, I say, I, I take a book and say, okay, um, I tend to like to write a book with about 12 to 13 chapters. So actually that's America's, that's most of my books, right? you know, 10 to 12, 13 chapters. Um, other people, they have much shorter chapters. Ron Chernow's books actually you know, um, uh, have, 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 have smaller chapters, okay? I'm going to have fairly long chapters, but then in turn, I'm going to break down my chapters into um, my 10 to 12, 13 chapters into um, um, uh, chunks, uh, three to five or six um, uh, subchapters. And I like to give subheadings um, within my chapters to, to each of these sections. And now, I've, let's, take, let's imagine it's a 600-page book. Okay, so I break it up into 12 chapters. That's 50, you know, um, 600 pages actually, you know, really long. So let's actually, I mean, modify 500-page book. That's a really long book. But I'm going to break it up into to 12 chapters. So now each chapter is about 40 pages or so, you know, on average. And I'm going to break up that chapter into three to six um, um, subchapters. So now um, I've got a series of um, five to 15 page um, uh, little subchapters. Okay. Um, maybe there are 40 of them in all, something like that. Um, okay. So I've taken one big book and I've turned it to 40 papers. And you know what those papers are? They're like my college term, um, uh, term papers. Or, um, um, so in, in college, um, at Yale College, I was able to learn to bang out um, a, a three-page essay, a five-page essay, a 15-page essay. For the final, it might be like a 20-page term paper or something like that. That would, you know, uh, back in the day, you, if you wrote a 10-page mid, um, a midterm paper and a 20-page um, a final paper that was actually pretty uh, much what what the professor might ask in a, in a serious history course a 10 page midterm a paper 20 page final exam paper a final paper okay um so um, and i was good at that i learned how to do that yale college taught me how to do that now i've taken a huge book and all what i've done my little trick is i'm turning it into 40 um connected um, little Yale College papers, you know, varying between five and 15 pages a piece. 
Um, and now each subchapter is its own little essay. It's going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's going to be punctuated in a certain way, structured in a certain way. Um, and now they have to fit together. Each of these subchapters have to knit together sufficiently to create a chapter, and the chapters have to fit together sufficiently to, to flow uh, together in a book. But now I've taken what seems to be an impossible, you know, big thing, you know, writing a 500-page book, and just broken it down into bite-sized chunks that, that I know how to handle. Um, but therein lies a tale, you see, because in this most recent book, when I did that, um, initially, um, my editor said, oh, you know, um, uh, and he's a lovely guy. His name's Brian Distelberg. Um, and he was actually just uh, relating to me um, uh, general guidance that he had gotten actually from uh, the, 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 the head of the publishing house, um, um, uh, Laura Heimert. You know, Akhil, we really try to avoid these subheadings. And I said, well, now you tell me, pal. I, I've sort of, that's how I conceptualize the book. You know, you can't take away my subheadings. You know, next next thing you know, you're going to say I can't use semicolons, or you know, I I've got to um, write um, a, a paragraphs of a certain sort. Um, Andy, you love, and so does Brian, the, the first sentence of a paragraph being the key topic sentence, and and that's true for most paragraphs, but sometimes actually. You know, for uh, you'll you'll want to actually end a paragraph with a with a bang rather than you know begin it. Sometimes you'll want to backload things just a little bit. Yeah, maybe you don't want every sentence to be a run-on sentence with a gazillion semicolons, but but there's a use for them. So so I, I told Brian, I said it's a little late to be telling me now that I can't use these subheadings because. Um, they're how I structure the book, and he said, well, just just get rid of you know the the, the words. You can still have. Um, um, double breaks, vertical breaks, you, um, uh, uh, kind of more white space to sort of um, uh, signal. Yeah, but I'm doing that even within each subchapter. There's a, you know, there's there's a difference in my view between a break between a, 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 a paragraph A and paragraph B and paragraph C. Those are paragraph breaks. And then when I'm kind of switching um, uh, scene a little bit more, I, I, I may actually have. Um, um, it, it's, and if you look in a book, there's a sort of a, a bigger space, a new little um, uh, subtopic. But then, actually, that's itself different um, uh, in, my, in the way I'm writing from the subchapter. You know, so I said like kingdom, phylum, order. You know, class, family, genus, species. You know, um, book. You know, uh, uh, actually, sometimes uh, uh, in this new book actually. Part one, part two, part three, book, part, then chapters, one, two, three, four, five. And then within the chapters, the subheading, and within the subheading, little even subsections, and within those paragraphs. So you can't take away any one of those things because that's, that's how I've been writing. And if you take away the little um, subheading, I'm going to have clunkier opening sentences because sometimes the subheading actually is substituting for uh, um, a, a more boring topic sentence or something. Um, what, so why do you think it. he? Why do you think he? What what virtue did he see in not having the subheadings? I mean, when he would, what was his argument? Um, well, the poor thing. He he actually was just telling me what Tara Heimert told you know him to do. So you, poor fellow. He, and he's been a lovely guy, and he's been help. He's helped me so much with this. But he was like a little bit like the rope, and it's like boy, saying, "Listen, you know, I'm just doing what Lara told me to do." And Lara is my favorite, you know, a person in the world. But I think she thinks that 
Um, uh, um, these subheadings can be a bit of a crutch for good topic sentences. And I'm saying, maybe they are a crutch, Laura, but, but you know, I have a limp. You know, I need the crutch. I need the cane, okay? It actually is. But, but seriously, it's helping me, I think, write crisper. So, so it, you know, if you think it's a bad um, uh, subheading title, tell me that. I think her thought is it kind of, when you just look at the book, it makes it look more cluttered and clunky. And perhaps it does. It doesn't look quite as smooth and seamless. Yeah, if you're just focusing on the look, and publishers do focus on the look. We're going to talk a lot about um, you know, book jackets and, and, and book composition, all, all sorts of things. Um, the, the look might seem a little more busy and cluttered. Uh, for example, m- a lot of book publishers don't um, like needless capitalization. So they try to minimize capitalization. Um, they try to minimize actually um, um, brackets and, and 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 ellipses and and um, so they they want the they don't even love uh, footnote callouts some of them so they want the thing to look just very smooth and inviting and I think some of the, the thought is these subheadings um, make it look too much like a textbook you know because would you have these subheadings let's say in a novel probably not okay so that might have been you know, Lara's um, uh, inclination. Um, But I actually thought these subheadings were making my writing um, uh, um, cleaner and and, and flow better. And the subheading was, uh, again, I could use it instead of um, a a, a clunkier um, transition or intro. You know, I could actually see her her point in in a sense when you're talking about the words that made us, because Uh-oh. that book... Now no, you no, tell me. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I agree with it, uh, but, I can, but I can see, you know, one argument for it, um, which what? is that that book is qualitatively different from your other books in that it's, it's a narrative from start to finish. Um, and so therefore, if, and it's a history book more so than a, than a law book, although there's certainly plenty of law in it. And so the the audience, you know, might be a slightly different one, and therefore, you know, you might you might say, well, the the less it looks, you're trying to appeal to people that wouldn't have read your book if before because they thought it was a textbook. So now you want them to think it's a different kind of book, and this is one of those ways that yeah. you can do that. So I can yeah. see that argument, but on the having read it, you know, from the reader's experience, I think I'm grateful for the subheadings. These are long chapters. It's yes. hard to read a whole chapter at a sitting. And the reader doesn't want to feel unsatisfied with what he's done at a sitting. If he can get through a certain number of subheadings, that provides the satisfaction or the, clo- you know, the, the, the breaking point where one can cut off a, a sitting and not feel you know, badly. So that it, it does provide a certain positive feedback for the reader uh, in that sense. So I mean, you beautifully set out and I, and the honest is think like, who cares, you know, semicolon comma, but, but you're absolutely right. These were principled discussions kind of between an editor who has a, you know, a point and a point of view and, and an author, because my book is so long, you can't read it, you know, in the, in the single city, the chapters are long. You see, again, Ron Chernow doesn't have this problem because he has 
I'm, I'm going to pull out his book right now, but I think he's got 50 chapters. I have my run journal right you know, uh, on my bookshelf. I have, I, um, I, actually, this one's an autographed copy. Um, um, and he's one of the dedicatees of the new book. We haven't talked about dedications. So um, the, uh, Ron Chernow's um, uh, Alexander Hamilton book, which is almost exactly the same length as mine. It's, um, I think, 832 pages all in. Um, 820 of them are paginated uh, or have um, 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 uh, Arabic numbers to them. Um, and then the others are additional um, uh, material. So his book is exactly the same length as mine, although um, uh, his has smaller fonts, truthfully. So, so his is actually a longer book. He has more lines per page, and we're going to talk about all that. So his book has 43 chapters and an epilogue. Okay, so his chapters are shorter. I have 13 chapters um, uh, and a postscript. So my chapters are a lot longer. So... In effect, when I take my 13 chapters and I, I make each one into, a, a, and I have um, a, a three or four sections within each chapter, that's kind of, you know, and now 13 times, you know, three or four is approximating Ron Chernow. So, so Ron is having short chapters and you read a chapter. I'm having longer chapters. So you have to read a sub chapter that, and, and I'm telling you where to start and where to end and and the, it's actually composed so that each one of those is its own, you know, little mini essay with an Aristotelian beginning, middle, and end. And yes, I'm punctuating it precisely so that you can read. I, I don't want you to break off in the middle of one of those little essays. I want you to read that whole essay. That's a self-contained unit. And um uh, and and so because I, I I've written a long book with long chapters. Um. Uh, so, 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 but you, so you see it now, um, um, what, what Laura was worried about and you see what I'm worried about, um, uh, which is not giving the reader kind of, um, uh, enough of, and, and remember she said, and, and Brian said, oh, you can do that. You can just put in a double space. And, and that kind of is the end of, um, a thought. And I say, no, actually, um, it isn't quite because I have double spaces even within my subchapters. I, I need something to signal here's actually where you should start if you're going to read 15 you know uh, minutes a, a, a day, 30 minutes a day at night. You know, here's where you start, and here's where yes, you can end and say ah, done. You know, um, and 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 the, and when you read it, that the, oh, you see, because you know a lot of uh, editors will say. Well, pay attention to your your topic sentences. Absolutely true. But the last sentence of each of these subchapters is supposed to actually have you know um, uh, a bang to it. And 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 you know who would understand something like this? A another one of my uh, dedicatees of uh, the new book, Lynn Miranda. Because you know how uh, if you're composing a big piece of music, you, you know. Um, maybe that's he's got different um, motifs and, and and different little um, smaller songs sort of within the larger kind of opera um, and 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 sort of where do you have small pauses um, and where do you have kind of bigger breaks between you know this piece of music and the next piece of music and how do you signal that to the re you know to the audience you know this is the end of of, of this song and now we are starting a slightly different song you know you and of course this is something that that you've refined over the years in terms of your as you say this is your you know your secret sauce 
But you've still had to evolve within that. So, for example, America's Constitution, a biography, which you mentioned is your first sort of, you know, start to finish book, as opposed to derivative of of uh, articles or what might be in a in perhaps a professor that isn't the law professor, you know, adaptation of their PhD thesis, you know, or something right. like that. Um, but in the words that made us, you know, the, well, going back to America's Constitution. That book is kind kind of has its structure pre-made for you, you yeah. Because the Constitution has its own structure, and you're taking you know start to finish, and you know whereas the words that made us is a continuous narrative. I mean, Article One doesn't really flow into Article Two, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to find a new way to go from. You mentioned your chapters of a, be, a beginning and an end, but the end takes on a different nature in the words that made us than the end in America's constitution. So let me read you. Hey, hang on, Andy, just before you do, you just said something that was utterly brilliant and it, it made a connection that I had never quite um, made um, for, for myself. Um, of course I would want subheadings because the constitution itself has subheadings. It actually has article one, article two, article three, Article four. And then within that, it actually has Article one, section one, Article one, section two, Article one, section three. And then even, you know, it, it's got actually um, uh, uh, subheadings within that clause, you know, uh, Article one, section um, uh, uh, eight, uh, clause um, 18, which is what we call the necessary and proper clause, for example. And so, of course, that's how I would you know, begin to think about the, the, uh, the book that most closely um, in uh, my first big book tracked the text. So, of course, I was going to, you know, just even um, unconsciously um, uh, um, maybe track the, the, the in, in my narrative, a feature of the text that I'm trying to expound, which is the subheadings, you know, with, with, within each chapter. So, of course, that would seem natural to me. And once having done it that way and perfected that way, I might apply it even in other books that, that, that aren't tracking the text of the Constitution, like this new one. So, of course, that's how it might have actually made sense to me or to Joseph Story, who wrote a three-volume um, uh, commentary on the Constitution that also kind of has this, this similar kind of punctuation. But from Laura's point of view, on the other side, of course, this, she might not love this because she say, Akil, Okay, I kind of understand why you, you do it, but, but here's the point. People don't read the Constitution for pleasure, sort of start to finish. Who, who, you know, so, so, um, so she, you're right. She had a point. She didn't want the thing to look like a clunky academic textbook. And, it, and here's where we converge at the end. I said, Lara, um, even if it looks a little bit like that, it doesn't read like that. It will actually, um, my writing is actually going to be better. It will flow more naturally if I can um, substitute for certain kinds of clunky, you know, boring topic sentences, um, just a, a, a three or four or five word heading that's actually telling you, you know, what this section is all about without my having to, t- you know, say that in a topic sentence. Yes. And but what I, I'm uh, and what I'm getting at here now is that you made a statement earlier that the amendments are 
you know, are, have a temporal component to them. They're chronological. Yes. And actually, I don't know if you if this was deliberate, but your writing changes at the ends of the chapters when you start to talk about the amendment. So here's the end of chapter four in America's constitutional biography, which is talk, we're talking about article uh, two, uh, America's first officer. So here's the last two sentences. While the nation has witnessed many presidential and vice presidential deaths, resignations, and disabilities, the two top offices have never lain vacant simultaneously. Although America has not always been smart, at least she has been lucky so far. Okay, that's the end of that chapter. It has absolutely nothing to do with the beginning of the next chapter. Okay, now let's look at chapter 10, um, A New Birth of Freedom. So here you're talking about the Reconstruction Amendments, and you say, left out of this masculine picture, of course, were women, many of whom objected to the enfranchisement of black men while they themselves remained disenfranchised. I'm going to skip a couple of sentences. Um, which raises the obvious question, how did America's women ever manage to lever their way out of votelessness and into suffrage? The answer lies in the next chapter of America's constitutional saga, which obviously leads into the next chapter of this book. Okay, so that now that, you've, that, now that the Constitution itself has introduced a temporal component, you've introduced a temporal component into the, and now let's look at the words that made us. So here's the end of chapter one. Now here, you, there's a temporal component, but remember the entire book has to have a certain unity to it. It's not just that this chapter has to go into the next chapter. Okay, so you say, the seeds had indeed been sown but they had yet to find enough rich soil to grow into something colossal. A continent-wide debate about British rules and British rule, a truly American constitutional conversation, had yet to dominate the scene. When it did, Otis, Adams, and Hutchinson would all be there. And obviously that, you know, raises a certain expectation on the part of the reader, but you don't satisfy that expectation right away. You know, that has to wait you know, quite a while, so, because, and because this is a long, so, so I see a real evolution in the way you've written there uh, in the ends of the chapters. And that, and it wasn't entirely um, conscious, um, but, there, but it's there, and, and, uh, um, and that's why, as an author, sometimes it feels as if the book writes itself. Once you've got the right schema, there's a certain sort of logic to the chapters and the organization, and it's actually compelling you. And just like, you know, good writing, if you have paragraphs, it's actually compelling you to compose your, your topic sentence so that you want, you know, understand what the ideas are in, in that paragraph or the information. So, um, yes, um, the, um, many readers have actually said this um, m- most recent book is a page turner of a certain sort, meaning that it's pretty well written but it's literally the page turn because at the end of every almost every chapter i'm actually um nudging you to turn the page to the next chapter 
And because it's chronological, okay, what's going to happen next? Oh, you know, and 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 now, okay, that problem solved. But but now there's another problem, okay? And 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 um, and, and and this is like um, in the Lord of the Rings, you're on a journey, okay? Well, you've you've made it out of um um you you you've you've you made it out of the Shire, but now you've got to get to you know um uh, to Bree, and then you've got to get you know to Rivendell, and then you've got to get you know under the Misty Mountains, and then you've got to you know uh, um uh, um eventually get to Mordor and and so so chapter two um uh, ends in a very similar way I, you know I say okay so they've solved certain problems but here's the problem that remains here's end of chapter two the personal and legal preconditions for revolution were readily snapping into place after 1774 but one key element the military element remained doubtful the patriots would need to prevail by force of arms against the world's mightiest empire at the peak of its power. How could two and a half million Americans possibly hope to defeat nine million Britons? You know, like that was with a question, like, oh yeah, how are they going to solve that problem? Just like, okay, uh, Otis Adams and, and, and Hutchinson will all be there. I don't tell you exactly, you know, what they're going to do, but oh, keep, these are my characters. They're, 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 we're going to see them. Um, and every chapter does that. Like, like, problem solved. Oh, but now new problem created. Um, a, a, a problem that, that looms on the horizon. And because it's a chronological story, um, um, I can basically. Um, and these um, these chapters, um, and, and I'm punctuating history in a certain way, but I, 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 I punctuate the chapters by saying, okay, these problems solved, now what are going to be the next set of problems that, we, they're gonna, that, that are sometimes created, a new set of problems, by the solutions to the earlier problems. Every time you, you solve a problem, you, you, know, you, you create a new situation that, that requires, you know, um, um, so... Uh, you get, um, you, you finally have a kid. Now, actually, you got to start raising the kid. Now the kid has to go to school, okay? Now the kid has gotten into, you know, a great college, okay? But now you start worrying about, well, who's the kid going to, you know, partner up with in life, okay? And then they find a life partner. Okay, well, is the kid now going to actually give you a, you know, this is the way we think about it, a grandkid, okay? And, and now you've got the grandkid. So, so every, you know, and, and that's how life is punctuated. Okay, so we, she, um, she had her bat mitzvah, you know, and, then, and, and, and now her, uh, uh, her commencement ceremony, and, and, and now she's off at college, and now she's going to graduate school, and, and now she's getting married, and, you know, and, and now, now, you know, she's having a grandkid or, or whatever. Um, so because it's chronological, um, I, I actually do um, have slightly different transitions between my chapters in, in, in this new book. This new book is a little more narrative and page turning. You're right, because it's a pure chronological story. But still, you've been able to maintain your, um, you know, your vignette approach to, to things. And uh, perhaps you'd like to, uh, to read one of them just as, a, as an example. Um, and the piece that I've chosen uh, for a reading uh, I chosen purposefully because it's about actually a fellow who I and and and, and um, just like you caught the idea, I'm saying the next chapter of our constitutional saga, but it's also the next chapter of the book. So there was a sort of pun intended, um, and um, so I'm gonna I, I tell the story of the great Joseph story who was John Marshall's right hand. He was Robin to John Marshall's Batman. Um, and he 
um, but he actually is, and he's the greatest uh, uh, associate justice probably in, probably in the history of, of the, the Supreme Court. He's also, though, a lot of ways like me. I, I'll never be a justice, of course, but he's an academic. You know, he's the, really the architect of the, of the, the Harvard Law School. He wasn't the first person, but he kind of reinvented um, the place, laid the foundations for it. But he also was a great constitutional scholar in addition to being a justice. He um, uh, wrote a three-volume treatise on the Constitution that actually walked the reader through the Constitution textually from start to finish. And at a certain point, I realized when I'm writing America's Constitution biography, oh, I'm doing something in the tradition of Joseph's story. The Federalist Papers, which are this important book um, on the Constitution that began as newspaper essays, they also pretty much track the um, written order of the Constitution. I'm going to tell you in this excerpt um, the story of Joseph's story, but I'm also in effect telling you my own story because I I haven't told the reader this yet, um, but um, uh, this book, Where's the Made Us, is the first of three volumes, and it's in the tradition of Joseph's story, a a three-volume set of commentaries on the Constitution. Um, This one, not um, as America's Constitution was, working through the text, but doing it differently, working it through chronologically. Um, But um, the the section that I want to read you is all about um, Joseph's story, who it turns out is um, um, kind of... uh, uh, um, my, I, I think one of my role models for the very book that, that you, a dear reader, have in your hands. Uh, so here's, uh, and, and this is um, a, a little um, portion that, again, I, I've, uh, I've signaled kind of has a beginning, middle, and end. Today, life tenure is a defining feature, not merely of federal judgeships, but also of university professorships in general and law school professorships in particular. Not so in the early 19th century when most academics had less formal job security. Still, it is apt that the Supreme Court justice who emphasized the issue of Article III life tenure more strenuously than did anyone else in the early 19th century was also the most literally professorial. When he took the bench in 1811, Story also took a pay cut. His rising law practice yielded about twice as much as would a court um, seat, uh, which came with a guaranteed annual salary of $3,500. He explained his reasoning to a friend in language that could just as well describe a modern litigator's decision to give up practice to become a law professor. He was drawn to, quote, the permanence of the tenure, the respectability, if I may say so, of the salary, and the opportunity it will allow me to pursue what of all things I admire, judicial studies, unquote. The bench would offer him a perch, quote, to look out upon the political world without being engaged in it, unquote. It's one thing to give up a probable but uncertain $6,000 or $7,000 a year for a guaranteed $3,500. It's another to forego an eye-popping likely salary of 15000 or perhaps 20000 But that, too, Story did, when in 1816 he declined an offer to take over William Pinckney's law practice at a moment when Pinckney's income approximated that of the President of the United States, who received $25,000 per annum. As Story's son would later explain, his father preferred, quote, the functions of a judge to those of an advocate. 
His ambition reached after the solid fame resting. His ambition reached after the solid fame resting upon judicial exposition, rather than the mere brilliant and ephemeral reputation to be won by contests at the bar. And for this, he was willing to sacrifice affluence. Unquote. Thus, young Joseph's story was already a remarkably successful politico and could have been an astronomically wealthy lawyer, but preferred a life of juridical studies with time to devote to the enduring exposition of law. This ambition and aptitude for study and exposition led him not merely to America's highest court, but also to America's oldest school. As he added luster to the martial court, so he brought glory to the Harvard Law School as Dane Professor of Law, post he accepted in 1828. Today's Harvard Law School houses a charming sculpture of Joseph's story. The statue presents story with book in hand. It's not a stretch to imagine that in the moment captured by the statue, he's making a profound point about the book, index finger extending out to engage us. Crafted by the justice's doting son, William Wetmore's story, himself a talented lawyer and an acclaimed sculptor, the statue resides fittingly at the entrance of the Harvard Law School library. Joseph's story was to the Harvard Law School what John Marshall was to the Supreme Court, not its first man chronologically, but its greatest early leader. Before story, law was at best an undergraduate area of study. Most would-be lawyers did not learn law in college, but simply read law as apprentices and clerks to local attorneys. The few law schools that existed were not grand centers of scholarship. In the main, they were for-profit operations run by practicing lawyers. Story aimed to create a more scholarly law school in which professors would be more than mere practitioners and graduates would become genuine jurists and not mere pedophoggers. As Marshall bent the arc of the Supreme Court, so Story bent the arc of Harvard Law School. Before 1828, no member of the Supreme Court was a graduate of Harvard Law School, assisting from Harvard College, Story's own alma mater. But Benjamin Curtis, a graduate of the HLS, that's Harvard Law School, class of 1832, an early beneficiary of the Story Revolution, would join the court in the early 1850s. Many more alumni would follow. Seventeen justices in history have reached the court after studying at Harvard Law School. After Story's remodel of legal studies, many other university-based American law schools eventually sprouted up in imitation of the academic template that Story embodied and established in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Story's remarkable influence on the court and American law more generally can be seen even today in the striking fact that for every year between 1993 and 2019, one school, Story's school, held at least as many seats on the court as all of the schools combined. Back in the 1760s, Harvard graduates such as James Otis Jr. and John Adams had seethed at the contempt that arrogant English overlords in London harbored for mere colonists. Revolutionary and post-revolutionary Americans had something to prove. We're, we're as good as the Brits, actually better. Defeating the British in the War of Independence was a first step at proving American equality in a superiority, creating a series of state and, constitu and continental constitutions to rival or excel the British system of government was a second step. Generating great jurists on the bench and in the academy was the third step. John Marshall was America's counterpart to Lord Mansfield, and Joseph's story was its answer to William Blackstone. Blackstone was not merely a judge, but also a scholar. 
His four-volume commentaries on the laws of England, published in the 1760s, emerged from his Viner lectures at Oxford. The treatise was a bestseller on both sides of the Atlantic. Supreme Court Associate Justice James Wilson had tried to offer an early American answer in his Philadelphia Lectures in Law in 1790 and thereafter, but he had not quite succeeded. Wilson never managed to publish the lecture series in his lifetime. Several years after, he died in debt and disgrace in 1798, and his lectures eventually came before the public, but failed to capture the American imagination. Thus, when Story decided to join the court, America had yet to find its Blackstone. Story aimed high. He sought to marry his judicial authority with his academic ability, build up Harvard as America's Oxford, and offer a set of commentaries on, American Constitu on the Amer America's Constitution every bit as powerful and ambitious as Blackstone's English commentaries. Story's three-volume Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, published in 1833, were dedicated to John Marshall. They took the reader through all the great historical events that had led to the American Revolution, the Articles of Confederation, and the culminating Constitution of the United States. They then walked the reader through the Constitution's text, article by article and amendment by amendment, exploring both the purposes behind each provision and the ensuing implementations and interpretations, especially by the Marshall Court. They explained proper methods of constitutional interpretation and explored the larger spirit of the document alongside its strict letter. They blended big and small, offering both panoramic vision and exquisite technical detail. Their main aim was to refute, utterly, Jeffersonian extremism of the sort that South Carolina had recently embraced in the nullification crisis of 1832. The Constitution, Story's commentaries proved, was just what Washington, Hamilton, and Marshall had said it was. Not a mere compact among enduringly sovereign states, but higher law that had come from the American people themselves that had created an indivisible nation, endowing its central government with broad powers. This magisterial work opened with a crisp preface locating the project within the larger worlds of law, history, and political science. Story introduced himself to his readers, not as a judge, but as a scholar, discharging the duties attending the Dane Professorship of Law in Harvard University. The biggest, that was a quote, the biggest scholarly challenge he had faced he explained, was to gather up all the relevant constitutional and conversation materials from the previous 70 plus years, materials that lay loose and scattered among pamphlets and discussions of a temporary character and among obscure private and public documents. How could Americans in the 1830s and beyond remain faithful to the Constitution if they had no reliable record of the conversations that had birthed it? And not just a reliable record, but an intelligent constitutional analysis of those conversations that would, quote, bring together, as Story hoped to do, the irregular fragments and form them into groups in which they might illustrate and support each other, unquote. Two great sources, Story reported, soared above all others. This is a quote. The Federalist, an incomparable commentary of three of the greatest statesmen of their age and the extraordinary judgments of Mr. Chief Justice Marshall upon constitutional law, end quote. Great as these precursors were, their ideas and insights had not been fully systematized and synthesized. 
Publius, that's the author of the Federalist Papers, had written for the moment, even if many of his ideas were timeless. Marshall's opinion were scattered essays responsive to specific issues that had arisen haphazardly in various litigated cases over the course of three decades. In fact, Marshall had tried to do more than that, using his cases as springboards for more general discussions of constitutional method and substance. But Marshall's project would become clear only when his various opinions were assembled, tweaked, and properly folded into a more comprehensive account of constitutional law of the sort Story was now trying to offer. Story ended his preface, preface by defining his mission more precisely. And here's a, a, a block quote. The reader must not expect to find in these pages any novel views and novel construction of the Constitution. My object is rather to bring before the reader the true view of the Constitution's powers maintained by its founders and friends and confirmed and illustrated by the actual practice of the government. The expositions to be found in the work are less to be regarded as my own opinions than as those of the great minds which frame the Constitution, which have been from time to time called upon to administer it. I hope it may not be wholly useless as a means of stimulating abler minds to a more thorough review of the whole subject and of impressing upon Americans a reverential attachment to the Constitution as in, as in the highest sense, the palladium of American liberty, end quote. This passage nicely captured both the opportunities and the constraints that confronted the most determined and faithful founding son of the 1830s. Story's treatise was remarkable for its blend of modesty, purporting to offer Americans a work, quote, not wholly useless, unquote, as a prompt to what he called abler minds, ambition, aiming to present, quote, the true view of the great minds on the whole subject, unquote, and reverence, envisioning the Constitution as, quote, the palladium of American liberty, unquote. So that's my section on story. It, it's a little mini essay on story, on the relationship between the academy at its best um, and, um, and the justices, this conversation between scholars and justices. And story was also, of course, a, a great lawyer, and he's writing for the lawyers. But he's also trying to write for ordinary citizens. So what I don't quite say, but I'm hoping, you know, a, you know, a reader will, will a, you know, a sensitive one like you will obviously see is Amar is also writing about his own project. He's writing in a story tradition, trying to write for ordinary citizens about the Constitution in a way that synthesize, that takes history seriously and is kind of reverential and patriotic, but also analytic and, and critical. Um, he already wrote a book like Stories, three volumes that walked through the Constitution, um, article by article, amendment by amendment. And now he's doing a three-volume thing that's kind of, in a way, updating Stories Project. A serious scholar doing history, um, in a, uh, constitutional history, in a serious way, but trying to make it accessible at one end to lawyers and judges, um, um, uh, and, and, and uh, a work of, of real intellectual ambition and achievement, but at the other end, ordinary Americans who need to understand the project. So I hope a reader will see, oh, of course he's talking about himself. You know, he's at Yale, you know, um, stories at, at Harvard, but, but he's not on the Supreme Court, but he's carrying on this story project. I mean, it just, um, I know, Andy, you've got some reactions. I just want to say 
two little things about this section. One, I dropped a fun little a bottom note. Um, this is not an end note. And you and I, um, and, and oh, oh, and my editors don't love bottom notes. They think it clutters the page. But you and I think, oh, if the, if the bottom note, if the, if the, a footnote, if the bottom of the page is saying something kind of cute and interesting, it's, it's worth it. It, 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 it just um, moves the reader along. It actually doesn't clutter. It, 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 um, it, it levitates if done right. So I have a little bottom note, I'm the quote, um, and, 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 and you see, I'm actually making a little joke about Harvard and Yale. Because, and I'm saying nice things about the Harvard Law School and all of this. The bottom note is, and they say, listen, the Harvard Law School is this epic place that in every year between 1993 and 2019, one school, Story School, has held as, at least as many seats on the court as all the schools combined. And then my note is, some observers have claimed that a small law school in New Haven, Connecticut, has also done rather well in this category. And so I'm hoping, you know, that brings a smile to the lips of some readers. And the other thing that you and I have talked about offline is in that little section, I've got a picture of the statue in the Harvard Law School um, of Joseph Story designed by uh, the statue was done by Story's son. And you and I, you know, both have sons um, and they're in, uh, and, and your son is a graduate of the Harvard Law School. And I hope my Matthew and I hope mine, you know, might one day be. And, and, I, and I've always been, you know, sh- I shown this picture to Vic and say, Vic. You see, this is what a good son does. A good son, you know, you know, erects a statue to his father. Go thou and do likewise. Um, so anyway, um, uh, um, that's a little section of the book that, you know, is a little mini essay. It's just on story. And it has, you know, and I wanted to sort of set it off um, um, so that a reader could just read that little chunk. That's a, a, little, a little song. Well, you know, we're talking about, you know, what it's like to be an author. I mean, I think that, you know, these... Some of the one of the purpose of these uh, episodes in our podcast is for many of you who have thought about writing a book. You know how how how, how you know what can you learn from someone who's written you know some successful ones and and is in the middle of a very big project. So, and I think that this particular passage, aside from demonstrating your method, as which is the purpose of choosing a passage, this particular passage addresses an issue. Uh, that I think authors have, which is uh, one of ambition. Um, you know, you want to aim high in a sense, um, but we all have role models, um, and perhaps we want to avoid being, you know, egotistical and saying, "Well, I can be like like this person." But on the other hand, if you're if the role model really is has taught you well then you're going to try to apply, you know, their lessons. And, of course, this is a, a timeless problem. People used to say in the Renaissance, um, you know, should I imitate Cicero? I can never be as good as Cicero, so all I can do is fail if I, if I imitate him. And then others would say, no, what is the point of writing if I don't think I can be, you know, Cicero? And here you are, you know, learning from story and uh, trying to, in some ways, be a latter-day Joseph story, and one might say, "Oh, you know, the, he's so full of himself. How can he think? How can he think that?" But you know, why be an author if not to to aim high? Uh, and um, I told you already in previous episodes about how um, certain historians were models for me. Historians whom I encountered literally my first day at Yale College: Bernard Balin, um, and Ed Morgan, who would later become my teacher, uh, um, um, and uh, 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 Pauline Mayer and and and, and Gordon Wood. Um, uh, uh, now, 
Um, but I'm not just an historian. I'm a law professor. Um, and um, my books aren't just narrative. I, I do lots of legal analysis in all of them. And I, I, I try to sugarcoat them with um, um, and, uh, history and, and, and storytelling and, and narrative and all the rest. But um, I'm doing something different than Ed Morgan and Bernard Balin and Gordon Wood because I'm actually going to uh, analyze lots of, 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 of law and make just fundamentally legal arguments uh, way more than they did. So who were my models for that? Actually, they were Blackstone and story. Blackstone was trying to write commentaries on the laws of England and became bestseller. He's actually trying to t- systematize law in an unwritten constitutional tradition and write a multi-volume set that would be useful to lawyers, but actually to uh, ordinary British subject. And his books were runaway bestsellers in America. The founders read those books. Um, and, and he was, though I'm saying in this passage, he was the model for story. His commentaries on the laws of England become Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution. He did four volumes. Story did three. Now, I'm writing a three-volume history. I did an earlier one-volume America's uh, Constitution, a biography, and then a sequel, America's Unwritten Constitution. Blackstone and Story are my models. The difference is they were judges, and I'm not. Um, But I see. But and and so, and history never quite repeats itself. But I'm not merely trying to be a pure historian in the 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 spirit of. uh, Gordon Wood or Bernard Balin or Pauline Mayer or Ed Morgan or Eric Foner for that matter or Jack Rakoff. I'm actually trying to be a certain kind of law person. Yes, it's utterly hubristic and ridiculous. And, and the other um, model, of course, is the Federalist, okay, which Story himself invokes. Um, and yes, it's hubristic to do that. It's ridiculous. But yes, um, look, either no one's going to do this at all which would be a loss to the world, or someone's going to try to do it. And from my point of view, gee, people, um, if that book doesn't come from a top law school, where is it going to come from? Um, I, I've been given tremendous um, a support, um, financial support from all the alums, um, daily um, um, stimulation by really interesting law students day after day, um, a semester after semester. So um, if someone at Yale or Harvard Law School isn't trying to do this, and actually it's probably unlikely that anyone else will. And I look around and no one else seems to be doing it. And I think it needs to be done because uh, because Story's book was from 1833 and the Constitution has changed a bit since then. Well, I think also that, you know, you could say like you use the word, you know, sort of sugar, sugar, each sugar coating or sugar something um, in, in connection with the history as if it's sort of like a sweet treat to spice up the, uh, the savory uh, constitution. But, <laughs> but actually, your brand of constitutional interpretation requires a knowledge of history in order to be done right. And one might argue that perhaps Blackstone is a better model for you than Story because Story didn't have that much American history to, to write about. You know, but remember what Gordon told us. He actually, he, he actually said, you know, 
um, the founders didn't quite think of themselves just purely as founders because there was 150 years before that. And actually, when you read stories, um, but he goes all the way back to the early colonial period um, and, and talks about colonial charters and all the history leading up to the Constitution. So by the time he's writing, you know, if I, uh, we've talked about the 1619 project, but he's writing two centuries after um, basically the um, and English have, have begun to um, uh, uh, colonize the, the American mainland. So he's got two centuries worth of history. And what he explains in that passage that I talked to, about is, um, how much of um, uh, the work for him was actually gathering together all these materials which were scattered, you see, because he doesn't have Google and the Internet. So just pulling it all together and tr then trying to, you know, organize it and analyze it. And that was and, and it's so much easier for me to do that because of um, uh, all the, uh, the intervening um, scholars and and resources. Um, but uh, um, he uh, and, and who else was trying to do something like that? One of the guys who's a, really a prominent character in my chapters one and two that our readers hadn't, most readers hadn't heard of before. Thomas Hutchinson was, in addition to all the, uh, the other things um, uh, that I talk about, a judge, uh, an important loyalist um, figure, um, um, uh, was actually himself an historian. And he pulled together, he actually did a, a, a multi-volume history of the province of Massachusetts, three volumes. Um, and the third one, he himself is a, um, playing an important role because the third volume is about his own lifetime in part. But he's, he spent three decades just pulling together all of these historical materials. And I think I read um, uh, previously, um, I think in, in this podcast, but if not um, on, on, on a book tour, um, a passage in which I, I narrate a, a really heartrending episode in which um, um, his, uh, in which the mob destroys his his house, um, destroys his garden, and takes all of these papers that he's collected and um, and throws them in the mud. He, he manages his friends manage to to re, um, reassemble most of them, but gee, as like an author, as an historian. Um, I, I was, you know, when I when I was reading all this, I was just so mortified. What what would have happened if someone had taken all my my notes and manuscripts and just, you know, shredded them? Um, but but he was trying to pull together the history of the Massachusetts province was Thomas Hutchinson, and one of the big, pro, uh, pro, you know, challenges for stories just pulling together all the primary source materials before you could begin to analyze them. And of course, this this book. I mean, yes, it's a three. You you now are aiming for it as a three volume set, and you know you do have this uh, you know big project. But of course, it, in some ways, it started a little bit smaller. I think it kind of took off, took on a life of its own, um, and became a little more story esque um, over time. I and mean, I think originally it was more uh, sort of decade by decade or 20, 20 year by 20 year period, you know, to see what was going on. And instead it's become much more a story of, a, of the story of America. And that's why it often feels as if I'm not writing the book, the book is writing me. You know, I started out with one kind of conception, but uh, as I found all this material and, and started to narrate it, it dictated a sort of a different, um, um, scope and 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 structure to to some extent, yes. Um, so, um, and and that's why, um, yes. Uh, those of you out there who are thinking about writing a book, um, it's a lot of work, but 
it's a lot of fun to to just get up um, uh, and learn something in the morning and learn something that you didn't know. And by the end of the day, actually um, uh, put on paper something that you didn't know when you woke up and maybe actually no one has thought about in a long time if you're doing a history book. Um, to, 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 um, and, and that's, um, you're, you're a physician. I'm not sure you had that thrill every day. My dad was, is still around. He's a physician. And there weren't, I think, uh, um, uh, it wasn't as um, common for him to actually, at the end of the day, know, know something kind of really big and interesting that he didn't understand at the beginning of the day. I, mean, I, could, I could have written a new eye chart by the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that, you know, so now we, this is a kind of a big picture look at um, at writing a book. and But there are also many, many uh, what might seem like smaller uh, nuances to, to, to a book, things like the physical structure of the book, which we touched on a little bit, um, the different parts of the book and so forth. And in our next episode, we're going to wrap up uh, possibly this, uh, this series by, uh, by getting at some of those, uh, and I won't call them minutia, but, but the, the sort of the specialty parts of book writing. Yeah. Um, just since we talked about like article one, article two, article three and, and subheadings. Okay. The title of the book um, and the font and, and the layout um, and uh, um, I guess in, in different little uh, parts, like, you know, what's up with the, the um, uh, dedication or the acknowledgments? You know, what kind of index do you want to have? How, um, how, um, how much back matter do you want to have in the book? Endnotes. We talked a little bit about endnotes versus footnotes. Um, um, your book jacket. You don't, you know, design it, um, but, but you're consulted um, um, uh, uh, about it, um, the blurbs on the back. We haven't talked. Who's going to blurb it, and how do you think about that? We talked about literary agents and publishers and editors, but what about blurbers? Because that's sending signals um, of of all sorts. Oh, and then finally, when it's out there, uh, how, how what do readers actually think? Um, and readers' reviews we haven't begun to talk about, and and book tours and and speaking engagements and. Um, and and uh, maybe also one at least one more look at um, the the economics of the whole thing. Um, and out come, out at the other end of this whole funnel comes an author. Um, and what does that mean? So we're going to talk about that. Yeah, the, like the next book and the book after that. If you want to actually, yeah, be actually not not just someone who's written a book, but written a bunch of books and maybe related books. An author. I, I mentioned like P.G. Woodhouse or something. He's he's got a style. Got, or Jane Austen. You know, she has individual novels, but they, they fit into an oeuvre. And let's just end with um, sort of a uh, a plea, if you will, uh, or at least a request of the audience. Um, you know, this podcast is free, and, and we're happy for, for you to listen to it. Um, and, uh, yeah, fair amount of effort goes into it, although it's a lot of fun. Um, and for me, it's like a book. Yeah, for for me, it's an excuse to spend some time with my friend Akil every week. So it's it's uh, it's easy for me from that point of view. But uh, right but back you, at you. Thank you. But you listeners, if you've uh, read the words that made us and, and enjoyed it, um, we ask you to to share that information. Um, go on, you know, Amazon or Goodreads or whatever, and and leave a, a reader's review. 
You know how you go, to, you go, you, you buy a new car and they, the, uh, the dealer says, Hey, give us five stars you know, <laughs> um, and everything. And that, that determines his pay. But in this case, uh, you know what the real payoff, I think for an author, especially this author, from what I've uh, come to know is people reading it and enjoying it. So if you're one that has done that, go on those, those sites and, and let people know that. And we'll talk some more about the importance of readers reviews next time. And then finally, um, as a uh, podcaster, uh, and, and to you as the listeners of this podcast, if you enjoy the podcast, there's an opportunity to leave reviews of the podcast, especially those that listen on a platform like uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts or Pandora or uh, all the Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all of these different platforms that we're on. They offer the opportunity for reviews. And, and that matters um, because it, uh, it brings the podcast higher in search ratings so other people can discover it. Um, and uh, plus, just lets your, your fellow podcast listeners know what's worth spending their time on. So give us a, give us a review. Um, give us some comments, and it will also help us um, see that, you know, what people think of, of what we're doing. Uh, so until next time, thank you, Akil. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, listeners. We'll see you next week.